So, uh, sorry. So now I just had the brain hamster totally like fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, we're off to a great start there. Yeah, this is like <laughs> we're off to two seconds a thrilling start to this episode. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I am Scotty Milder. This is two weeks in a row that I've almost forgotten my name. I'm not even tired. <laughs> what's going on i'm scotty milder horror writer filmmaker here in albuquerque yes and i am amelia Ampuero. i'm an actor and theater maker also in albuquerque new mexico and i'm not tired but i stayed up late i stayed up ridiculously late for me last uh, night so i'm i don't know my, my circadian rhythm is off or something i don't know maybe we'll see so, we'll so see what if it has any effect what exactly is ridiculously late for you Two. Yeah, that's pretty late for you. That's usually when you kick me out of your house. Yeah. So. <laughs> so and I'm like, you've got to go. to go. Well, because otherwise we would just literally talk until we died. Yeah, we would basically just do the podcast forever <laughs> until we died. <laughs> anyway, you guys are listening to The Weirdest Thing. This is our podcast about weird shit. Yep. And uh, so what are we talking about this week? We're, t- we're doing some crazy plane stories. Yes, but I have a couple of announcements type things first. Cool. One is a correction. Last uh-huh. week in my story, I said the second Paul Williams renovation, I think I said took place in 1925, which doesn't make any sense. It took place in 1955. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And the second is just a little, uh, it is still Black History Month. And today, the day we were recording, which is February 21st, today is John Lewis's birthday. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And it is also the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. know that. I, I think I had seen that it was John Lewis's birthday, but I missed that it was Malcolm X. Which yeah. is an interesting date synchronicity. Yeah, sort of both beautiful and horrible at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, those are all the announcements that I I need to have, so. Yeah, I mean one of these days I'll actually like correct some of the the dumb shit that I say, but right now I can't be bothered. <laughs> I here's the thing, we have made countless mistakes. There's been tons of stuff that yeah. we've been like we've straight up been like we're making this up on the spot because we didn't research correctly. I don't know why me saying 1925 for Paul Williams in terms of the Knickerbocker Hotel has just been stuck in my brain mm-hmm. and I couldn't go on. I had to correct it immediately. Well, if we're doing that, I actually do have one of those. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is from our very first episode. Um, when I was talking about super volcanoes, I referred to the Lake Taupo eruption in New mm-hmm. Zealand, which was the super volcano about 75,000 years ago that almost wiped out the human race. Yes. It's not lake taupo it's lake toba and i knew it and i knew it the second i said it and for four months now it's been by <laughs> so i'm actually glad you brought this up <laughs> what if we just derailed our own podcast episode and we were like oh wait hold on back in the third episode and we never got to our stories yeah luckily i'm too lazy for that so okay <laughs> yeah that's that's not what's going on this week but yes we are covering some i mean i know mine is an air disaster is yours as well mine is a very near disaster disaster. Disaster. 
it's an extremely crazy story, but I'll, I'll just leave it at that for now. I think you're going first. Yes, I'm going first. So I'm going to talk about, this is the story of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, also known as the Miracle of the Andes. Mm. Right off the bat, I'm going to give a content warning. This story does cover uh, some pretty extreme circumstances, and I do talk about cannibalism. Mm-hmm. I have left out as many gory details as I can, but you kind of can't talk about the story without yeah. without talking about cannibalism. Well, um, before I forget, my story is basically all gory details. Oh, great. So, <laughs> this is a great so, episode for our squeamish friends. Yeah. So uh, just content warning for mine as well. Because I, I literally could, like, I would have five minutes of story if I didn't go into it. So awesome. Okay. Okay, cool. So mine is the somewhat sensitive retelling of this story. Scotty's (laughs) is not. (laughs) Sources for this are Wikipedia, the New York Times, an article from January 1st, 1973, which is days after these events happened, Mm. titled 70 Days Battling Starvation and Freezing in the Andes, A Chronicle of Man's Unwillingness to Die. An article from All That's Interesting that had like four titles, so I'm not (laughs) sure which one it was. An article from History Collection, how the Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crash drove a rugby team to cannibalism. Mm -hmm. Let's hop on in. So on October 12th, 1973, members of the old Christians rugby team, along with family members, friends, and other passengers boarded Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 from Montevideo, Uruguay, bound for Santiago, Chile. The plane was a turboprop Fairchild FH-227D, and it was chartered by the club president to transport the team to the game. This was supposed to be like wheels up in Montevideo, wheels down in Santiago. There we go. Yeah. Done and done. But inclement weather forced them to land in Mendoza, Argentina on October 12th. Okay. There is a whole bunch of flight stuff that I could get into. I'm going to get into a little bit of it, but it is dense (laughs) flight information that has to do with like elevations and airplane types and, Mm -hmm. you know, directional that which, so I'm going to, I'm going to try to boil it down as much as possible to like the thesis of it. Yeah. It sounds like lots of physics. Yeah. As we've already discussed, that's not our strong suit. Right. Yeah. Like a huge chunk of this stuff on Wikipedia is like combinations of letters and numbers punctuated by words. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just like, I don't know what any of this means. Yeah. So again, boiling down to the thesis syrup of this story. So like I said, they were supposed to land in Santiago that day, but a storm came in. There is a direct route over the Andes from Mendoza to Santiago, but in order to cross the mountains, which Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to talk about in a little bit, to cross the Andes, you have to fly at an elevation of about 25 to 26,000 feet. Yeah. And the FH-227D would have been flying very close to its maximum operational ceiling. Mm -hmm. Also something to know, this plane was lovingly named the lead sled by people who flew it. Uh, Yeah. I already don't like that. Yeah, it was like a heavy, like clumbering, that's not a word, but plane, you <laughs> know what I mean? Yeah. Onopata, onomatopoetically. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. I melded clamber, like clamoring and lumbering to get yeah. us clambering. <laughs> Okay. So since the plane was full of passengers and full of like luggage and all of this stuff, the pilots 
decide to take a longer, lower route to the south. Mm -hmm. So instead of flying directly over, they decide they're going to fly south to a point where the mountain range kind of dips down to an elevation of about 8,000 feet, Mm. fly through that. That's called the Planchon Pass, fly over that, and then they would turn north to fly back up to Santiago. Makes sense. On October 13th, the weather hadn't cleared up that morning, but was expected to clear up later in the day. The flight finally takes off at 2.18 p.m. Piloting the plane are Colonel Julio Cesar Feredad, and he had flown over the Andes nearly 30 times. But mm-hmm. on that day, he was training Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Lagurara, who was doing the actual flying. Oh, as Lagurara. That sounds risky in bad weather. It's just a, everything coming together perfectly to create the situation. Yeah. So as Lagurara piloted the plane over the Andes, clouds obscured the view. So they were flying solely on instruments. Mm-hmm. They had no visibility. Yeah. The plane was supposed to, like I said, it was supposed to travel south around the mountain at the Planchon Pass and then turn north up towards Santiago. For reasons that continue to this day to be unclear, La Gurara actually turned the plane north about 40 miles too early. So if he's like, I'm doing this visually for Scotty, if he's going down and he rounds it and he's supposed to come out over here, yeah, he turns it and go- does like comes up like this. Yeah. So he essentially flies into the meat of the mountain range. Ugh. Yeah. And these are, this is not the Appalachian. I mean, we're talking the end. These are like 20,000 foot mountains. Thank you for that fantastic lead in. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the Andes mountains. Okay. They're the longest continental mountain range in the world. They form a continuous highland along the western edge of South America. The range is 4,350 miles long, goes from anywhere from 124 to 435 miles wide, and has an average height of 13,123 feet with its peak reaching a staggering 22,838 feet. Yeah. It extends through seven South American countries, and they are Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. Mm-hmm. This range is not a fucking joke. I mean, 22,000 feet, that's like nine, ten thousand 10,000 feet more than your average Colorado Rockies. Yeah, feet. for anybody who's here in Albuquerque, it is over twice as tall as the Sandia Peak. Yeah. I have flown over the Andes. I knew about this story already. It was an eerie experience mm-hmm. um, because I flew I flew over it. We didn't go around it like I flew over it. Yeah. Um, the mountains are so big. <laughs> <laughs> that as I was flying in the plane and like looking out the window to the like the mountains beneath us, I was like, if the plane exploded, I could feasibly survive the fall. Yeah, like, but then you'd be on top. <laughs> right. But you know what? Right. Like that's how, and th- that is more to say to get a plane over the Andes right. requires a certain amount of plane magic that I don't really know enough about, but yeah, not a joke. Serious, yeah. serious, serious mountain range. Okay. So the plane begins to unknowingly descend into, like I said, the sort of meat of the mountain range. They're immediately met with extreme turbulence. Some people say a couple hundred of feet. I also saw 3000, but that they lose that in like in elevation Ugh. immediately. Like the plane is smacked down. And at this point, the passengers on the plane are like, whoa, you know, cause it's this, the people on the 
the plane are this team of rugby players who are in their late teens and early 20s. They're family members. There were a couple of other people in there. Like there was a woman who at the last minute, somebody canceled on the plane. And so she was like, oh, I'm going to buy that seat so I can go to my daughter's wedding. Uh, like that, those are the people on this plane. Yeah. So they lose the elevation and the, the team is sort of like, whoa, okay. And they're like kind of joking around and, you yeah. know, doing that thing until they look out the window and they're like, oh, we're close. One of the survivors said that he looked out the window and the mountain was six feet from the tip of the wing. Holy shit. Yeah. That just so, made my balls retract into my body. Okay. <laughs> We're all sorry about that now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they lose the elevation and that also bumps them out of cloud cover, at which point the pilots are like, oh, that's a mountain in front yeah. of us. They try to correct by pulling the plane up and they pull it up till it was almost vertical. The aircraft's ground collision alarm starts going off and, you know, it just, I'm, I'm sure all hell breaks loose on the plane. It doesn't work. The plane goes on to strike the mountain two or three times. This is up for debate because some people say that the tail cone hit first and then the right wing and then the left wing. Others say that the right wing hit first, tore off, Ugh. and knocked the tail cone off of the plane. Yeah. Either way, at 3.34 p.m., either the tail cone or the right wing hits a ridge and the tail section is torn off. When the tail cone comes off, it also took a rear portion of the fuselage with it, which includes the galley, the baggage hold, the vertical and horizontal stabilizers, and two rows of seats in the rear section of the passenger cabin. Three passengers, Gaston Costamalle, Alejo Juni, and Guido Magri, along with the navigator, and that is Lieutenant Ramon Saul Martinez, and the steward, Orvido Ramirez, are sucked out of the plane when this happens. Yeah. The plane goes for another 600 feet, 660 feet, before the left wing hits another outcropping and is torn off. At that point, two passengers, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valletta, fall out of the rear. The plane is now essentially a giant toboggan, yeah. and it hits a slope, slides down for about 2,300 feet before it hits Ooh. a snowbank. 2,300 feet. Wow. Mm -hmm. The glacier that they essentially land on sits at an altitude of nearly 12,000 feet and is nestled in between peaks that are all 14,000 to 15,000 plus in elevation. This glacier would later officially be named Glaciar de las Lagrimas or Glacier of Tears. Mm. Okay. So when the plane stops, it is now sitting 50 miles east of its planned route. Yeah. When the plane hits the snowbank, it crushes the cockpit, immediately killing pilot Ferradas. The seats inside on the impact are torn free and they're hurled towards the front of the plane. Team doctor, Dr. Francisco Nicola, his wife Esther, Eugenia Parado, and Fernando Vasquez are killed. The co-pilot, Lagurara, who had um, done this who had done this, yeah. is critically injured and trapped in the crushed cockpit. He asks one of the passengers to find his pistol and shoot him, but the passenger refuses. Yeah. 33 passengers survive the initial crash, but many are seriously or critically injured with wounds that include compound fractures. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what a compound fracture is, I'm not going to talk about it because it gives me the heebies. Yeah. And also Google don't, it. please, I mean, you can Google, Google it. Don't, go, don't, don't Google image it. Yeah, Just I was going to say, Google be real it. careful. Yeah, because it is something that makes me nauseated just thinking about it. So there are two medical students on the plane. That is Roberto Canessa and Gustavo Zerbino. And they immediately are like, they immediately go to work. They're mm -hmm. trying to assess and treat the injured. Among them are Nando 
Parado, and he has a skull fracture, and yeah. Enrique Platero, who's been pierced in the abdomen with a piece of metal from the plane. Yeah. These, these are the medical students with the injuries. No, those are- Oh, no. Yeah, those are two of the other passengers. I see. Okay. Nando Parado actually ends up slipping into a coma for three days, but he mm. comes out of it. Rescue services were alerted within the hour that the plane had gone missing, and the rescuers start searching immediately, and they search all afternoon until the sun goes down. The Uruguayan media is alerted of the missing flight around 6 p.m. Chilean rescue services listen to the radio transmissions, and it's then that they're like, oh, shoot, this plane is not where it's supposed to be. Yeah. And the reason they say that is because the co-pilot, La Gurara, had been like, yeah, we're rounding, like we've come through Planchon Pass, we're going to be approaching Curico, which, you know, was going to be like Santiago was going to be right after. And mm -hmm. that is when air traffic control was like, cool, you can start your descent. So as he yeah. made the turn into the mountains, he was also like, and go down. So just, oh, yeah, yeah, just a mistakes but, all over. But so they sort of had an idea then, it sounds like, what direction they turn. Yeah. They also realized that the plane is most likely in one of the most inaccessible parts of the Andes. Mm, yeah. yeah. That first night, five more people die. Co-pilot La Gurara, Francisco Abal, Gracia. Mariani, she was the one who was going to her daughter's wedding. Mm. Felipe Maururian and Julio Martinez Lamas. Over the next eight days, aircraft from Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay search for the wreckage. The survivors, they see every plane. Oh, God. They see every plane, but because the fuselage is white, yeah. their plane blends in with the snow and it can't be seen. They try riding on the roof of the, the fuselage with lipstick, but they realize that they don't have enough. It like... Oh, God. Yeah. On the eighth day, the searches are called off and it's decided that rescue teams will look for the bodies in December when the snow starts to melt. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. So they so they just gave up on them, mm -hmm. which I um, mean, fair-ish. Like if I was them, I would not imagine that anyone survived in that kind of environment. Precisely. Yeah. And that's, that's what they're thinking. They're thinking like immediately, maybe, but by the eighth day, like there's no way. Right. So that happens. The remaining 27 survivors turn the fuselage into like into a shelter as much as they can. They stuff the mm -hmm. end with seats and luggage. They leave like a little crawl space for people to enter and exit. The space is about eight feet by 10 feet. So that's 27 survivors yeah. in a space eight by 10 feet. And they get to work trying to figure out how to survive. Marcelo Perez, who is the rugby team captain, takes the lead and sort of mm -hmm. becomes the de facto leader of this whole thing. Right. So again, we're in the Andes. We're on top of, a, of an actual glacier and temperatures at night are dropping to negative 22 degrees. Jesus. All of these people are from Uruguay. They're from sea level. They have no experience with high altitudes. They have no medical supplies, no cold weather clothing, no equipment or food. Most yeah. of the team had never even seen snow before. Wow. But they're like, we're going to, like, we're going to survive. Mm -hmm. So they start improvising. They make sunglasses, which I know might be like sunglasses, but you know, because you, you ski, like, you know how real snow blindness is. Yeah. yeah. So they start fashioning sunglasses out of sun visors. They use seat cushions as snowshoes, seat covers for warmth. They find a small transistor radio and they rig an antenna from electrical cable that they find on the plane. On the 11th day, passenger Roy Harley, who I think was the one who had rigged the radio so that they could listen to it. Roy Harley hears that the searches have been called off. Um, no. The book Alive, the story of the Andy survivors, describes the moments 
following them hearing that as such. Quote, the others who had clustered around Roy upon hearing the news began to sob and pray, all except Nando Parado, who looked calmly up at the mountain which rose to the west. Gustavo Coco Nicolich came out of the aircraft and seeing their faces knew what they had heard. Nicolich climbed through a hole in the wall of suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey boys, he shouted, there's some good news. We just heard on the radio, they've called off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft, there was silence. As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that good news, Paez shouted angrily at Nikolich. Because it means, Nikolich said, that we're going to get out of here on our own. Mm-hmm. The courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. Wow. I mean, and again, like how old is this kid? Like 21, 22, probably. Yeah. If not in his like late teens. I mean, I, it's that thing. It's like, I'd love to think in that situation. That's how I would be. And it's like, no, like, (laughs) yeah. I also think it's, it is something culturally that if you know anything about Latin American sensibilities and senses of humor is 100% falling in line. (laughs) That like, (laughs) Hey-o. <laughs> like <laughs> the good news is they've called off the search. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, that's a little bit the Jewish sense of humor too, but the Jewish sense of humor kind of stops at that point. It doesn't right. like continue to the, now we're going to do this alone. It's just more like, well, they called off the search anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like I said, this news comes through on the 11th day. There was very little plain on the food to begin with. They yeah. found eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, some candies, dried plums, and several bottles of wine, which is also hilarious to me because it was supposed to be a direct route. And they're mm-hmm. like, no food, hella wine. Yeah. Um, but that's the way it went. The survivors divided up what little food they had and they tried to ration it out. Parado, who I mentioned had the skull fracture, when he finally wakes up from the coma, he manages to make one chocolate covered peanut last three days. Wow. The food runs out after one week. Yeah. I mean, of course it did. I'm surprised it lasted a week. Yeah. They try eating parts of the plane, like the cotton from inside the seats and bits of leather, but this just makes them sick. So they know they're trapped on a, like on the fucking glacier that the search has been called off and all of the food is gone. Survivor Roberto Canessa said, quote, our common goal was to survive, but what we lacked was food. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates preserved outside in the snow and ice contained vital life-giving protein that could help us survive. Mm -hmm. We wondered whether we were going mad even to contemplate such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing the limits of our own fear. Something that you have to understand about the people on this plane is that they were all Catholic and like Catholic Catholic. And most of the dead are either classmates, close friends, relatives, teammates. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of the survivors worried that they were essentially damning themselves to hell by even contemplating what they were contemplating. Right. But they eventually started to like basically rationalize the thought of cannibalism by comparing it to the Eucharist, the body and the blood of Christ. And others used verse John 5, 13, no man hath greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Yeah. So they 
essentially the survivors come together and they make a pact and they say, hey, if I die, please eat my body in order to survive. I'm, right. I'm giving permission for you guys to do this. So Canessa uses broken glass from the windshield as a cutting tool. And he sets the example by being the first one to eat a small, like a matchstick sized piece of flesh. Many others follow suit, but some flat out refuse and yeah. others eat, but immediately get sick and they can't keep it down. Some of the survivors talk about how like your mouth won't open. Like you're trying to feed yourself oh, this food and you're like everything in you is like, don't, don't, don't do this. Well, and I've got to think on top of that, there's a physiological response. I think if you go X number of days without eating, your body literally won't process the food the same way yeah We've and got actually the psychological and the biological working against them here 100 starving at sea level is different than starving at high altitudes yeah because your body is burning like is going through tremendous caloric burn just for you to like stay conscious right at high altitudes i mean um, that's part of what i think took out the donners too i think i read that yeah, yeah that wouldn't be surprising yeah i okay so we're in albuquerque we are right. already about a mile high in elevation just hanging out here yeah so i and you know i see people come to albuquerque and they're like oh let's go hike the sandias and i try to warn them about elevation and they're like ah eh, whatever that's fine I'm, I'm like really fit but elevation altitude is no joke uh oh, no. you can be a very fit person and, and still be knocked on your ass because of altitude well i mean i almost never really believed it until i actually moved down to sea level you know when i lived in boston and then also in la and then whenever oh, yeah. i would come back it was noticed like breathing was so much harder and then like half of a sip of alcohol i was just oh done yeah Just done yeah and when my friends from new jersey well from boston but originally from new jersey and delaware came and visited mm -hmm. uh we tried to go hike the sandias and it fucked them up like yeah so yeah it, it is it's for real yeah and they're um, at twelve thousand feet so they're like yeah like between 12 and thirteen thousand feet yeah um yeah i was going to say a few years ago this is not a few years ago it was like a decade <laughs> now but i went to uh i went to bolivia with my parents and we had a layover in la paz which sits at an elevation of i think around 11 to 12 thousand. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, I was probably, you know, in the best shape of my life. I'm an Albuquerque kid, you know, I'm like, ah, whatever elevation sitting in the La Paz airport. And I was like, <gasps> like, yeah. you know, I was having trouble breathing. I was having trouble, like my mental faculties were starting to get messed up. And my, you know, my wonderful sweet father is sitting there, you know, he's like in his late sixties and he's like trying to order me coca tea and everything. Like he's fine, even yeah. though he's lived in the United States longer than he's lived he's just younger than he lived. Yeah. yeah. He was just like, whatever. Yeah. He's just, they're just pouring cups of coca tea down my I'm, throat I'm, to get me used to it. I mean, even when I go skiing, cause like you said, we're worried about we're I don't remember exactly the elevation of Albuquerque, but like you said, it's sort of 5,000 plus feet. Mm -hmm. And I'll drive up to Santa Fe and I think that's at about Santa Fe ski basin is about 10,000 feet. And it's like, I, you know, it's a thing I think skiers kind of learn almost uh, subconsciously. It's mm -hmm. like once you're up there, you just learn how to breathe different because it's so easy to either not get enough oxygen or then panic and like hyperventilate. It's right. Yeah. But right. It is, no joke. 
Yeah, it's no joke. Okay, so that's everything that we're de- that's everything that they're dealing with, not me. Yeah. I wasn't there. So again, they make this pact. They start, you know, trying to to eat the bodies of their fellow passengers. Numa Turkati, he was a passenger, a teammate. He refused to resort to cannibalism and he finally died on December 11th weighing only 55 pounds. Mm. Nando Parado, who was the man who had been in the coma and had had the skull fracture, his mother died immediately in the crash and his sister died, I think, on the 8th day. Mm. Parado protected their bodies and everybody respected that and those two bodies were never eaten. Yeah. The survivors would cut small pieces off the corpses and dry them in the sun. So this is already terrible. Oh yeah, because... They didn't have any like cooking implements. Never even no, so they're that. just making like jerky. Okay, yeah. So like I said, this is already pretty terrible. And it just gets worse. Uh, yeah. Sometime in the middle of the night on October 29th, this is 17 days after the crash, Ugh. an avalanche occurs and it hits the aircraft. The fuselage fills with snow and immediately kills another 18 people. The people lost in the avalanche are Enrique Platero, Liliana Metol. She was the last surviving woman. Gustavo Nicolich, who uh, had done the whole thing of being like, hey guys, get news. Daniel Masons, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Roque, and Marcelo Perez, who had been the team captain. The remaining survivors took the deaths of Marcelo Perez and uh, Liliana Metol especially hard. Oh yeah, I would imagine. And this leaves, I mean, there can't be many of them left at this point. Mm-hmm. If, that, if that took out 18, like that's... Eight. eight. Oh, eight. Okay. Yeah, 17 days after the crash, took I out see. another eight passengers. Okay. So that happens on the 29th and they're all like, well, they're finally able to dig out of the plane on October 31st, only to discover that a blizzard has moved in over the glacier. Yeah. So yeah. The next three days, the survivors are stuck in the cramped fuselage with the bodies of those who died in the avalanche while the blizzard rolls through. With no other choice, they begin to eat the bodies of the newly dead. Before the avalanche happened, some of the survivors were already starting to be like, there's no way we're going to get out of here unless we climb out. Yeah. But it's only some of them at that point. The dead co-pilot, remember him? Mm-hmm. Before he died, he told survivors that they were where he thought they were. So as they're like, you know, we're going to have to climb out of here, the survivors think they're just a few miles to the west of civilization, but they were actually 55 miles to the east of any, like other humans. So this co-pilot just really had no idea where he was. I just, it was, it was bad. Yeah. Throughout this time, the survivors had made a couple of like short expeditions right after the crash, but they're dealing with altitude sickness, dehydration, snow blindness, malnourishment, extreme Mm -hmm. cold, and they can't get very far. On November 15th, a trio that had set out, I think they were like, we're off to go find help. Like we're going to get us out of here. They hike and they find the tail section of the plane about a mile from the fuselage. There, they find a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum, cigarettes. There's something about, I think they found like 190 cigarettes and it was like, woohoo! Cigarettes, extra clothes, a little medicine, and the aircraft's two-way radio. They plan to try to continue east the next morning, but this is the first night that they're sleeping outside and the three nearly froze to death. And they're like, we're unprepared for this. We have to go back. There's a whole thing too about them trying to like, like, because they find the two-way radio, they're like, okay, cool. We can take this back to the plane because we've got the stuff there, but the batteries are like too big to lug to the uh, 
plane. And so they're like, okay, well, we can bring the stuff from the plane to the tail. But then there was like the two-way radio and the stuff that they had on the plane was like different voltage. It didn't work, essentially. Nothing's working out for them. Nothing is working out. Nothing is working out. This is around the point when everybody comes on board with the fact that like somebody's going to have to climb out. There's no way. And there's no, there's no way for them to get out of this. So they begin to plan. The survivors hear on the radio around this time as well that the Uruguayan Air Force had resumed their search for the crash. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. So this is roughly a month after they've been out there. So at this point, they basically start to prepare. It's decided that three men will go, and that is Nando Parado, Roberto Canessa, and Antonio Vicintin, that Mm -hmm. they will be the three to hike out and do this, this expedition. So they spend, like I said, the next month preparing. And that means that those three don't have to do the manual labor. Like they get relieved of manual labor duties. It sounds weird to say that because like they're crashed on a glacier, like what manual labor is there to do. But because of the fuselage isn't sitting like nice and, and straight, it had like rolled over on its side. And because they're sitting on a glacier and it's starting to become summer in the Southern hemisphere, things are melting. So they're constantly having to shift wreckage around the plane to keep the fuselage from moving and shifting and rolling further and and all that stuff. So it's just a constant thing of like moving stuff around every day to keep the fuselage where it is. Right. So they do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. It's all so insane. They also spend that month making a giant three-person sleeping bag out of insulation that they had found in the tail. Uh, one of the one oh, of the yeah. survivors, his mother had taught him how to sew. So he teaches everybody how to sew. And they like spend days working on this like giant king size sleeping bag. I mean, it is it is pretty incredible just the ingenuity that like that kind of crisis situation can. Prompt. Yeah, they were determined. They were determined yeah. to to survive. So on December twelfth, Nando Parado, Roberto Canessa, and Antonio Vicentin set out to climb out of the glacier. The three have no mountaineering gear and are only equipped to weather the freezing cold nights with this giant sleeping bag. <laughs> Yeah. Before leaving camp, Parado had told the survivors, before Christmas, I will have you out of here. Again, this is December 12th. For three days, the survivors at the fuselage watch Parado, Canessa, and Vicentin climb up the steep mountain. Ugh. I mean, that yeah. I've got, I'm just like putting myself there and just thinking that would almost be like the most terrifying. Yep. Because it's like so close and so far. Yep. Kind of yeah. 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 And you're so helpless just sitting there watching. Watching them. Yeah. When they finally get to like the top of the 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 sort of basin where the glacier is, they're like, "Oh, we're nowhere near civilization." We're much farther than we thought that than we were. I think they'd planned for this to be like a six day journey. And when they get there, they're like, this isn't going to yeah. be a six day journey. And they realize that they don't have enough food. So Vizintine is like I'll go back to camp. You guys keep going here. Take my food. Yeah. Vicentine fashions essentially like a sled out of, <laughs> it's so weird. It's so weird. Out of an aircraft seat. And he's like, bye. And he's like, down the mountain. <laughs> the distance that the three of them walked in three days, Vicentine covers in one hour on this seat. 
Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gravity. And also it's just indicative of how not well they were like, obviously these, and these are, you know, these are rugby players. Like they were probably again, young in the best shape of their life when they boarded this plane. Yeah. But they're two months into this now, two months into this now, you know, um, and, and dealing with extreme conditions. So from the top of one peak, Canessa and Parado catch sight of two small peaks on the horizon that aren't covered by snow. Mm. And they're like, that's where we're going. Parado turns to Canessa and says, quote, we may be walking to our deaths, but I'd rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. Canessa replies, you and I are friends, Nando. We have been through so much. Now let's go die together. The two hike for several more days. They reach the snow line and they finally begin to find signs of life. They're seeing like, you know, remnants of like campfires and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And they finally see cows and they know where there are cows, there are humans. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be like the most beautiful cow you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, I bet. On the ninth day that evening, Parado and Canessa see three men on horseback across a river. The two yell at the cattlemen, but the water makes communication impossible. One of the cattlemen tells the survivors that he'll be back the next morning. Mm-hmm. The man. Um, I, I mean, again, like I get it, but just like that, like, oh, wait one more night. Thing. <laughs> like that, that had to be so hard. Right. And at this point, like Parado and Canessa are just like, they're exhausted. Uh, I think it was saying that Canessa was like, I can't go on. Like he, he sat down and he was like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I can't go on. The reason that Catalan said, Catalan, the cattleman who saw him and was like, I'll be back. The reason why he's like, I'll be back the next morning is because he thought they were vagrants. Yeah. So he was like, okay. Yeah. He doesn't realize. I'll come. Yeah. I'll come back and see you guys later. But he does. He comes to run him off or something. (laughs) But he does come back the next morning, but the river is still like the the sound of the rushing river is still too much. So he takes paper and a pencil and he attaches them to a rock with some string and he throws it across the river. Parado writes a note and throws it back. This is what Catalan gets. It's a note that says, I come from a plane that crashed in the mountains. I'm Uruguayan. We've been walking for 10 days. My friend is injured. There are 14 people at the plane. We need to get out of here quickly and don't know how. We have no food. We're weak. When are they going to look for us up there? Please, we can't even walk. Where are we? Shit. Catalan reads the note and is like, Roger that, throws them some bread and takes off. He writes, 10 hours on horseback to bring help because even out in the, like, you know, the, oh, right. the, the rural areas of Chile, they've heard about this plane that's gone down. Yeah. So he knew exactly what was going yeah. on. Yeah. So he's like, cool, cool, cool. Takes off, rides 10 hours on horseback on his journey to go get help. He sees another cattleman and he's like, yo, there are two survivors from the plane. They're sitting by the river, go and get them. Yeah. Catalan manages to stop a truck and he is able to reach a police station at Puente Negro, Chile. The police at Puente Negro holler at the army command in San Fernando, who hollers at the army in Santiago. Mm-hmm. Canessa and Parado are brought on horseback to safety where they get rest and food. Canessa alone had lost nearly half his body weight wow. throughout the whole ordeal. I think it said like 99 kilos or something like that. Yeah, which is a lot. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, he essentially went, but... yeah, he essentially went from being like a 200 plus pound man to being like 100 pounds. Wow. Word quickly spreads that there are survivors from flight 71 and everybody is like 
what the fuck? And of course the press is like, what? We want to talk to them. Yeah. The Chilean Air Force is like, yo, here's three helicopters. Go get those mother effers off the top of that mountain. And Parado volunteers to lead the helicopters to the crash site. Mm -hmm. True to his word, on December 22nd, the helicopters carrying Parado and other rescuers reach the remaining survivors. But the altitude and the weight limits mean that the two helicopters can only manage half of the survivors. Yeah. This next part messes me up. Four members of the search and rescue team stay overnight with the remaining survivors on the mountain, and they all sleep in the fuselage for that last night. The helicopters wow. return the next day. Yeah, that day. got me too. Yeah. <laughs> the helicopters returned the next day at daybreak, which thank God they weren't like, we've got some stuff to do in the morning, and then we'll yeah. be by three in the afternoon no like the sun came up and they were like what's up we're here yeah i'm sure they were like get them the fuck off this glacier as soon as yeah Yeah. Uh, there's something about the the four members of the rescue team being like hey we're gonna stay with you Mm -hmm. that just like well because that probably means there's four more survivors that they were able to send up than they would have been able to otherwise and i think it was a thing too of it's like leaving it's like a deposit right like you know they have to come back right yeah. And not that they wouldn't have, not that they would have been like, ah, half is good, but just, yeah. you know, for the, for the mental well-being of the people who got left on the mountain, right. I'm sure that that was very helpful. So the helicopters return the next day at daybreak and they carry the remaining survivors straight to hospitals in Santiago. They are treated for altitude, sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. The remaining survivors finally leave the mountain on December 23rd, 1972, 72 days after the crash. Wow. So so that's 16 total survivors? Mm-hmm. Wow. Out mm-hmm. of, it was 45. 45. Mm-hmm. 40 passengers and five crew members. Yeah. During the rescue, the Chilean rescuers took photos of the bodies that had obviously been cannibalized. I also imagine that that's got to be a bit of like a, for the people who stayed, mm-hmm. of like, yeah. hi. <laughs> you know, like, whoa, uh, they probably came upon quite a sight. A Catholic I mean, priest heard every survivor's confession once they got down. Yeah, because, I mean, I've got to think even with those rescuers, if they saw, like, you'd almost have to imagine they're okay down there and they're thinking, okay, these people, 14 people are still up there. They've been there for two months. Like, they had to have at least known something about what they had to do to survive. I would imagine. I would, yeah. I would, but, but also... Well, I'll get to that in a sec. So the survivors had originally planned to publicly say that they very carefully rationed out the food and to inflate the amount of food that had been on the plane, Mm -hmm. Uh, that they were going to say that they had carefully rationed out the food that was on the plane and that they had survived by eating edible plants up there and that they would privately tell their families and the families of the other passengers what had actually happened. Yeah. Which but understandable. Understandable. On December 26th, two pictures of a half-eaten human leg were printed on the front page of two Chilean newspapers, <sighs> which reported that all survivors had resorted to cannibalism. Which wasn't true, um, right? It's not true. And I think it also made it sound like everybody who originally survived the initial crash turned to cannibalism and I think kind of leading to be like, and then they killed each other. Yeah, I mean, that's what everyone like wants to say about the Donner Party. And when you read about that, it's like, no, it's not. Might have been a little bit of that. But like, you know, people always go to the most sensational assumption that they can make. Right. So that happens and everybody, of course, loses their shit. On December 28th, the survivors hold a press conference to basically... 
I mean, you know, they hold a press conference because this is a big deal. Like that's yeah. that's pretty obvious. Alfredo Delgado, who's a survivor, they decide that he will be the spokesperson for the group. And he compares what they did to Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, during which Christ gave his disciples the Eucharist. God, there's this, I was going to say beautiful. It's like a heartbreaking photo of Delgado at the press conference. And he looks like a guy who just came off of, a, you know, spending like two and a half months on top of a mountain. Um, yeah. And he's got these like aviators on. And you can see like all the microphones and stuff in front of him. There's that picture. And then there's another picture of an older man just like hugging him and he's kissing his cheek. I have not been able to find any sources for the picture. So I don't know who is the other man, but mm-hmm. it seems like it is probably like it could be his father or yeah. a family member. While they initially faced public backlash after explaining that all of the survivors had made a pact to sacrifice their bodies if they died to help the others survive. Everybody chilled the fuck out and was like, oh, they like they did what they Good. had to do. Yeah. It was decided that the remains of those who didn't survive would be buried near the site of the crash. 12 men and a Chilean priest were taken to the crash site to deliver last rites and bury the bodies. Mm-hmm. Family members were not allowed to attend. A stone altar and orange cross were placed close to the grave, along with a plaque that reads, the world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O God, to you. So they were buried on the glacier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The courage of the survivors has been described as a beacon of hope to their generation, showing what can be accomplished with persistence and determination in the presence of unsurpassable odds. In Montevideo, they have erected a museum that tells the story of the flight and the crash and the survivors. Uh, that museum is the Andes Mountain, or I'm sorry, the Andes Museum 1972. <laughs> I don't know why the year is in the title, but yeah. that might be a rough translation. Right. I was wondering. In 1973, the mothers of 11 of the victims founded Our Children Library in Uruguay to promote reading and teaching. Mm. In March 2006, the families of those who'd been on the plane erected a black obelisk at the crash site, memorializing those that died and those that survived. Family members also founded the Viven Foundation to preserve the legacy of the flight, the memory of the victims, and to support organ donation. Mm. Viven means they live in Spanish. Uh In 2007, oof. In 2007, Sergio Catalan, who was the cattleman who encountered Canessa and Perado by the river in an interview on TV, revealed that he had osteoarthritis of the hip. Canessa, who had been a medical student at the time of the crash and had since become a doctor, raised funds with other survivors to pay for the hip replacement surgery. Sergio Catalan died on February 11th, 2020 at age 91. Wow. So just, wait, what year? 2020. Last year? Wow. Yeah. To this day, people from all over the world make the three-day trek to the crash site to pay tribute to the victims and to try to understand how they survived. Of the 16 survivors who were rescued from the mountain, 15 are still alive today. And that is the incredible survival story of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. That's pretty incredible. I mean, I've seen the movie Alive. Mm-hmm. like. Which obviously this is the basis for that movie. Yes. The basis of the book. Um, yes. I've seen it, but oh my God, it's been so long. Yeah. I don't remember. I mean, I'm guessing they must have softened things somewhat for the movie. I don't remember it being this harrowing. I remember. 
I mean, it was. It was mm-hmm. bad in the movie, but. Yeah, I remember the plane crash scene mm-hmm. and the avalanche scene being very bad. Yeah, I do remember those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, one thing, it's like, you know, a movie just can't portray like the amount of time that it took yeah additionally and there are a couple of there are a couple of things about the movie that i would like to talk about um (laughs) one being that i don't know if there are any actual latinos who were in that movie the movie was made in 1993 so it makes sense if i'm being completely Mm -hmm. honest Um, i I think i remember that actually being brought up at the time like mm -hmm. there were definitely people being like hey guys yeah it's got like john malkovich ethan hawk plays i think ethan hawk plays either berado or canessa i can't remember which one josh hamilton is another one who plays i think part of the thing with the movie is there's just, it's hard to convey that amount of time and that amount of time, 72 days being spent on a glacier. Additionally, there were things like Ethan Hawke refused to grow a full beard for the movie. He was like, no, I'm going to have my, I'm going to have a goatee and that's, that's going to be what it is. Ethan. So it's stuff like that, that it's like, well, okay. I mean, I like Ethan Hawke, but that makes me like him a little less. I feel like it's peak Gen X, yeah, like grunge behavior of like, man, I'm rocking this gray goatee though. It's just like you are portraying people who survived on a fucking glacier for Mm -hmm. 72 days and Mm -hmm. literally had to resort to cannibalism. Mm -hmm. You can't be bothered to even grow out your beard. Yeah, (laughs) like come come the fuck on. Yeah. Yeah, I believe Berado was, what do you call it? Like a technical consultant on the Mm. film? Yeah. And 11 of the survivors visited the set. It's been so long since I've seen or read anything about that movie. I seem to remember the general consensus being that it was overall pretty accurate, like a pretty accurate depiction of it. Mm -hmm. I'd like to go back because I remember thinking at the time it was a good movie. Yeah, I don't think that there, I mean, you know, obviously there's a bit of like dramatization. There's a whole thing with like the red shoes at the end where they like split them up and it's like, you know, when, when we like, we'll be together again, when we can make these a pair again and stuff like that didn't happen. There was, I don't, I don't remember. I've watched like little bits and pieces of it doing the research for this. It doesn't seem like it's, you know, like there's no like weird love story that they decided to like shoehorn in there. (laughs) (laughs) there's no reason that like you see one of like the female like one of the women naked on the plane or anything like that yeah yeah it's it's, which at that time like i wouldn't be surprised if they tried i mean 93 yeah but again yeah it is um you know it is something that i would if they decided to make this movie with an all latino cast like i would be very happy about that we have a dear friend who is an actor who like looking at pictures of the survivors i'm like our friend can play like any one of these roles right now i know yeah talking about (laughs) yeah there is a fantastic picture of canessa and parado when they've been rescued and sergio catalan is like standing behind them and they're like sitting they're like sitting on the ground or like on a log or something and catalan is behind him and is like you know his like cattleman gear and he Mm kind of looks like he's like smiling but he kind of looks like he's like what the fuck (laughs) <laughs> like yeah. I stumbled on these two guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it is it is an incredible testament to the will to survive. Yeah. 
Yeah, it really is. Which, uh, should I go into mine now? Yeah. So I'm not going to say my story is more fucked up than yours, because <laughs> it's okay. clearly not. There's no cannibalism or 72 days on a glacier. Mm-hmm. But it is also extremely harrowing, ex- very violent. So again, content warning oh, for yeah. everyone. And But also kind of a pretty incredible testament to the will to survive okay so let's do it so this is another air disaster like i said kind of a near air disaster uh disastrous for the people on the plane certainly it was oh did i forget to write down the flight number i think i did oh but i think i remember it It was fedex flight 705 and the attempted hijacking thereof Okay. So my sources for this are Wikipedia and then an episode of my favorite TV show of all time. Air Disasters. <laughs> this is from season six of Air Disasters. You can, you guys can watch it on uh, Amazon Prime. What was uh, the whole? Oh, that you said that the, you said Air Disasters should be in the Smithsonian. It should be in the Smithsonian. <laughs> and after watching this episode, I fully you do, you with double that. down, <laughs> double down. down. Okay, like it should be in the Louvre. Is okay. what I'm All right. Okay. <laughs> the episode is called "Fight for Your Life." It's from season six of Air Disasters. Okay. So FedEx Flight Seven Zero Five. This was on. April 7th, 1994. It was a McDonnell Douglas DC-10 cargo jet carrying primarily electronics equipment from the FedEx headquarters of Memphis to San Jose, California. It was supposed to be like roughly a five-hour flight. And then the crew, it was basically like a quick turnaround flight. So the crew was supposed to fly there, unload all the shit, fly right back to Memphis. So it was going to be like sort of 10 hours total for this crew, crew of three. Five Uh, hours from Memphis to California? Yeah. Okay, okay. I mean, it might have been a little less actually because you have to factor in the time that they were going to unload the plane. Although I'm sure like FedEx, they do it quick. Right. But it was supposed to be a 10-hour total flight time to go there and back. I'm sorry. What year is this? 1994. Okay, okay. April 7th, 1994. So the flight crew was 49-year-old Captain David Sanders, who is ex-Navy, 42-year-old First Officer Jim Tucker, who's also ex-Navy, and then the 39-year-old flight engineer, a guy named Andrew Peterson. Okay. Now the plane was also carrying another passenger. It was carrying 42-year-old FedEx flight engineer Auburn Calloway. Okay. He was supposed to have been the flight engineer on that flight. In fact, his crew, like he had a crew that he regularly flew with, they were originally scheduled to do this trip. Okay. But on their previous trip, they had gone one minute over on their flight Ooh, time. Ooh, mm-hmm. and, so and that's no were, joke. Yeah, so they were pulled. But Callaway was desperate to get on this plane, get over to San Jose, at least that's what he was telling people. Okay. So FedEx had, and I think probably still does have, a policy where if you're a FedEx employee, you get to fly, essentially deadhead these flights for free. Okay. Uh, sit in the jump seat, which is in like the galley area, which is like right behind the cockpit. Mm-hmm. And between the cockpit and the cargo hold, basically. Okay. And um, this is a FedEx plane, so it's not a passenger plane. It's they're not carrying, a passenger They're plane. carrying mail and stuff, and then the these exactly. four humans. Like, like electronics equipment, like I said. Okay. And so there's only four people on the plane. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, no, I was going to be like your fucking Zappos order. Um, yeah. And then I laughed at my own joke and then decided that it had to be shared with the world. I mean, it was uh, worth sharing. <laughs> <laughs> so like i said sanders tucker and peterson were a replacement crew but callaway was like i need to deadhead on this flight everyone was like cool 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 sanders peterson and tucker didn't really know each other because since they were a replacement crew they i think they were just sort of grabbing who was available sanders who's the captain and peterson who's the flight engineer they had flown together once before they'd flown to paris mm-hmm. neither of them had ever flown with jim tucker who is the first officer 
So they're all kind of coming together for the first time. And then none of them knew Auburn Calloway. Okay. Andy Peterson, the flight engineer, he shows up first. And he's surprised to find that Auburn Calloway is already on the plane, like sitting in the jump seat. And, you know, he's confused because he's like, well, I'm the flight engineer. Why are there two flight engineers on the flight? But Auburn Calloway was like, no, I'm basically just hitching a ride. Peterson was like, oh, okay, cool. Peterson goes into the cockpit to start doing his like pre-flight check. Mm-hmm. And the first thing he notices is that the circuit breaker for the cockpit voice recorder had been tripped, which he had never seen before. He was like, how did that happen? But he's like, mm-hmm. okay, whatever. He pushes the circuit breaker back in, continues his pre-flight check. At some point, he gets up to leave the cockpit. Callaway's still sitting in the jump seat. At this point, Sanders and Tucker show up. They also are kind of surprised to see Auburn Callaway there. But, you know, I think this is something that happens. There's, you know, these employees deadhead on these flights all the time. So they're like, oh, okay, whatever. Welcome aboard kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They go into the cockpit. They start doing their pre-flight check. Peterson comes back he looks up and he sees that circuit breaker for the cockpit voice recorder it's tripped again at some point between him getting up and leaving and sanders and tucker coming in that thing had tripped like in in like a cockpit voice recorder is in the the air disasters episode andy peterson is being interviewed and he's like this is a no-go item like if your cvr is not working you cancel the flight Mm -hmm. he was like well i'm gonna push it back in and see if it stays while we're continuing our check because if it doesn't if it pops out again and i see it pop out that means we've got a problem and we need to get maintenance but, you know, they're on the cockpit. He's kind of keeping his eye on the circuit breaker. It stays put. Nothing happens. So they take off. They had a brief discussion. Sanders and Tucker had a brief discussion who would actually fly the plane. They're both very experienced pilots. Mm-hmm. I think it was, it sounds like it was almost a little arbitrary who was captain, who was first officer on this okay. flight. Okay. And so Sanders says to Tucker, at least in the episode, he's like, hey, man, like, you know, take every chance to fly you can get. And so Tucker's like, cool. So Tucker, the first officer, is actually flying the plane. This I was a little unclear on. They said he decided to hand fly the plane, which means he's actually, you know, manipulating the controls. Okay. I don't know if that means the autopilot it was completely turned off or if just like part of the autopilot system had been sort of turned back over to the pilot. Mm. But this is important that he's hand flying the plane. Okay. at this point they're about 20 minutes after takeoff they're just climbing through 19,000 feet and i think you know this is dc 10 so it's probably like 30,000 plus foot cruising altitude so mm-hmm. they're still climbing yeah, ascending they're... sanders tucker and peterson they're just kind of sitting in the cockpit having this routine conversation and everyone kind of forgets that auburn calloway is out in the jump seat mm-hmm. now this is something i'm assuming they must have changed this rule Okay. But I think since it was a cargo flight, so there's no passengers, no paying passengers at least, Mm -hmm. and everyone on board is an employee and a certified pilot, they're just leaving the cockpit door open. They're not feeling like they need to secure it from this guy who's another pilot. Who's another employee. Yeah, yeah, another pilot. Mm -hmm. So they're doing their thing. Callaway gets out of his jump seat. They don't see him. This is behind them. And he goes to a guitar case, which he had brought on board. Mm-hmm. He had initially planned to bring his flight bag, but I guess his flight bag was sent in for maintenance, which I, I mean, I'm assuming it's like a duffel bag. I don't know why you need maintenance on a flight bag. So maybe it's more complicated than I'm thinking. But- well, well, we have a resident uh yeah pilot expert will ask we'll <laughs> yeah, check <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about that but so instead he brought this guitar case and he opens it up and his thought was a guitar case looks pretty innocuous since i'm a fedex employee it's unlikely to be searched mm-hmm. so he had loaded up this guitar case with hammers of various sizes the f- including including a 20-ounce framing hammer. And if you've ever used a framing hammer, those things, like, go in. You know, like, it's a a big hammer. (laughs) And also a spear gun. Yeah. 
So Spirit like a harpoon? Yeah, like a harpoon gun. It looked like from the Air Disasters episode, I don't know how accurate this is, but mm-hmm. it looked kind of like a revolver, like a pistol, but with this spear that comes out of the front. What? It's like four inches of spear coming out of the front of the gun okay. with a big old nasty barb on the end. Now I'll get to why the hammers and the spear gun here in a little bit when I get to the motivation okay. for this. But first, let's talk a little bit about Auburn Calloway. Okay. So he was a very experienced pilot. He had actually graduated from Stanford University in uh, 1974. Okay. And then he became a top Navy flyer and then went on to become this commercial pilot. He was also a martial arts expert. He'd worked for FedEx for five years. Now, this is something I'm going to speculate a little bit on. Okay. Because this might play to his motive, though I'm not sure. Okay. I wasn't able to find anything about this like directly, but I did see some people sort of commenting like maybe this was a play. Auburn Calloway was black. Okay. And he had been this decorated Navy flyer and he gets hired by FedEx and they just relegate him to being a flight engineer and he just can't get promoted. I wonder if there was either some racism involved or if he was perceiving some racism there. I've seen people speculating on that. I don't know that that's true. Mm-hmm. But that seems to at least be something people have wondered about. Mm-hmm. But he was known to be very intelligent, very driven. He was also known to be like a staunch family man. He was divorced, which I'll talk a little bit about in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But he had two kids that he was deeply, deeply involved in their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, he had grown up very poor, apparently. And he was just like, I do not want this for my kids. So even after the divorce, he's doing everything he can to provide for his family. Mm-hmm. But he just can't get a promotion. So let's talk about the attack. So again, Peterson, Tucker, and Sanders, they're climbing to 19,000 feet. It's about 20 minutes after they left Memphis, mm-hmm. having this very nice kind of casual conversation. And then Auburn Calloway comes into the cockpit. Mm-hmm. And Andy Peterson, the flight engineer, he says in the episode, he looked up and he was like, oh, here's Calloway. And he just thinks, you know, he's a fellow pilot. He's just coming into the cockpit to be like, hey, what's up, guys? You know, maybe yeah. just hang out in the cockpit. Well, no, he looks up and Calloway immediately hits him with the hammer on the top of the head. And I could not find how many times he struck Peterson, but it sounds like it was several times. Fractured his skull mm-hmm. and severed his temporal artery, which is the artery that goes up the, from the back of your neck, like from your carotid and like uh-huh. basically provides all the blood to your scalp. Ooh. It's a major artery. Yeah, Um, okay. So at that point, Tucker, who's flying the plane, remember, hand-flying the plane, turns Mm -hmm. around, and Calloway hits him with the hammer. Fractures his skull as well. He then turns to attack Sanders, who's the captain, who at this point is acting as the co-pilot. Well, Sanders, Mm -hmm. he saw Calloway hit Peterson. He saw him hit. This is all unfolding within seconds. Seconds, yeah. Saw him hit Tucker. So by the time Calloway comes for him with the hammer, he's kind of able to fight him off a little bit. Mm-hmm. He pushes him away. It looks like, uh, you know, I think he did get hit, but I don't, he was nowhere nearly as severely injured. He said, this is a quote from the Air Disasters episode. He says, what I saw was simply a face in his eyes and an object coming down at me. I didn't discern any emotion or hate or anger. I just saw a threat and I didn't really know what the threat was. Because he was like, this was unheard of. Like to right. have a pilot attacking another pilot on a plane. This is just not something that happens. Right. At this point, Calloway leaves the cockpit. He thinks he's incapacitated the crew. He goes out back into the galley. Sanders, the captain, the least injured of the group, Mm -hmm. manages to unbuckle his seatbelt. He starts to stand. Calloway comes back in with the spear gun and he points it at Sanders and he says, sit down, I will kill you. 
Okay. Now he's probably thinking he already killed Peterson because he had really fucked up Peterson. This is the flight engineer. Several mm-hmm. the temporal artery fractured his skull. But Peterson wasn't dead and he was in fact pretty conscious. At this point, Tucker, who had been flying the plane, he said that he was dazed. He said he had about 45 seconds where he kind of grayed out. Um, he didn't lose consciousness. Yeah. But he was like, I lost essentially useful consciousness. Mm-hmm. But Peterson, I think, was like starting to get his back. So as Callaway's standing essentially in the doorway with the spear gun saying, sit down, I'll kill you to Sanders. Peterson, who's sitting in the engineer's console, so kind of right off to the side of him, reaches forward and grabs the spear and the spear mm. gun. And they start to wrestle. Peterson and Sanders both push Calloway out into the galley and they start wrestling for both the hammers and the spear gun. Oh, God. As they're doing this, Tucker, who again, remember, was a very experienced Navy pilot, in fact, was not just a Navy pilot, but actually had been a combat flight instructor. So he knew how to fly a plane. Now, he also has a fractured skull and a brain bleed. But he's thinking, like, this is his quote. He says, I had figured out that what I had in my hands was one of the best weapons, and that was the aircraft itself. He also said, I was looking at this whole situation as if it was an air combat maneuvering situation. In the fighter community, the first thing you want to do is engage the bogey, engage the bad guy. Make him predictable by engaging him, and you use his predictability against him, and then you kill the bogey. As Sanders and Peterson are pushing Callaway back out into the galley, they're wrestling for the spear gun, they're trying to get the hammer away. It's just this fight to the death. Tucker takes the plane, he pitches it up 15 degrees. So he goes Mm. into a steep climb, which basically throws everyone back to off balance. And he says in the interview uh, on the Air Disasters episode, he's like, I didn't really know if I was helping or hurting. Right. Right. It was like, this is all I could do. I was just trying to keep him off balance so he couldn't get back into the cockpit. Okay. So he pitches it up 15 degrees. They all fall back into the galley. And then after pitching the plane up, he started rolling the plane to the left. And what he decided, he wasn't just like kind of eh, roll a little bit, roll a little bit. No, he rolled it 140 degrees. Wee! essentially upside down he said he left just enough ground in the window so that he could kind of keep a visual reference so in this galley you've got these three guys fighting over a spear gun hitting each other with this hammer like Mm -hmm. i mean it looks like at one point sanders has the hammer at one point callaway has the hammer and they're just i mean just going at each other like beyond thunderdome Mm -hmm. while tucker is essentially rolling the plane over onto its back and and by the way <laughs> it's important to note tucker is doing this with a dc-10 yeah this is not a, not combat. a Cessna. <laughs> you know he was trained on i think it was a5s which are like okay. a major combat plane mm-hmm. they're designed to do all of this mm-hmm. um dc-10 is not really you shouldn't roll a dc-10 more than 60 degrees he rolled it 140 degrees nice. and if you think 60 degrees that's a big bank yeah 140 degrees is i mean the plane's upside down yeah not only does he roll it 140 degrees Mm -hmm. he then decides to take it into a steep dive again just trying to toss them around the galley while this is happening they're fighting out in the galley callaway managed to free his arm which was holding the hammer and he struck sanders again and almost knocked him out and this is about the point that then tucker who's listening to all this behind him uh-huh. He's still upside down and he puts the plane into a dive. So he's diving steeply upside down. This is making me ground. nauseated. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's insane. And you know, and of course it's this air disasters episode, so it's like real cheese ball. Like CGI. reenactments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the fight scene is like it's a it's 
definitely because like, <laughs> it's got it's got all the fighting in the episode but it, you can tell this is like a, a reality show kind of right. recreation he's going into the steep dive which the g-forces of this essentially push all of the men in the galley back against what's called the smoke curtain which i believe is like the wall that separates the galley from the cargo area okay. so they're basically like flat against the smoke curtain still fighting for the spear gun and the hammer as the plane is diving top speed for dc-10 is supposed to be about 430 miles an hour what tucker says in the episode he says well i don't really know how fast it was going because it went past the barber pole what he calls the barber (laughs) pole which is the line at the top of the gauge Mm-hmm. And it's like a white and red line, basically like top speed, which I think the barber pole was set at 500 miles an hour. And he was like, I hit the top of the barber pole and we were still speeding up. So they actually think it was pretty close to breaking the speed of sound, which would be 767 miles per hour. No one has had ever done this in a DC-10 and survived. Okay. It gets worse (laughs) because (laughs) as the plane is shooting towards the ground, Tucker realizes two things. The first is, oh, this is why the plane's going so fast. Since we were still climbing, we were at full thrust. So now he's got to reduce the engine speed to idle. But he also realizes that his head injury, remember, he's got a fractured skull. Right. Becoming half paralyzed. Like the the right half of his body is not working anymore. So he's only got... So they're in an upside down dive towards the ground and he's got one hand that he's using on the stick and he has to take it off the stick, reach over and pull the engine down from full thrust to idle, Mm -hmm. Um, which he didn't know if he'd be able to do, (laughs) but he's like, but I got to do it. This is also what's going on in this dive is the airflow over the plane is so intense and the G forces Mm. are so intense that it's basically threatening to rip the elevators off the back of the plane and if you Mm. lose the elevators like your plane is gonna crash Mm -hmm. because that's how you go up or down you know there would just be no way to pull out of this right but he manages to pull the engine back to idle he's still listening to the fight in the galley behind him and it sounds like callaway is winning callaway gets the hammer he manages to hit sanders again on the top of the head tucker's basically taken the plane well past its design limits and they're just plummeting out of the sky so he realizes he has to try and level the plane at this point but he can't do it too fast because if you do it too fast you can break something off again you can rip the stabilizers off or yep so he's like slowly with one hand and half of his body paralyzed pulling the plane out of the dive and leveling it Mm-hmm. While this is going on, Peterson, who has who's the flight engineer, has the severed artery. Mm-hmm. You know, he's almost passed out, but he and Sanders, the captain, have managed to pin Callaway to the floor of the plane. And Sanders gets the hammer away from Callaway and starts hitting him. And what he says in the interview, I didn't write down the quote, but he's basically like, I was trying to end the fight. He was like, I wasn't trying to kill him. I was just trying to make it where he couldn't fight anymore. Um, yeah. So the plane gets level. And this is the first chance that Tucker is able to radio air traffic control in Memphis. Now, this has all happened, I think, in about three and a half minutes. What? I mean, I mean, obviously, but what? I know. (laughs) It's insane. Oh, my God. Um, At this point, he finally manages to radio air traffic control in Memphis. And he says, we have an emergency. Mayday, mayday. Someone's tried to take over a plane. We need to come back to Memphis. He says, make sure there's an ambulance on the ground. We have injuries. And we need armed intervention. Which is basically him saying, we need a SWAT team to come and, like, storm this plane as soon as we get it on the ground. The controller is hearing this. He doesn't know what kind of weapons were used. (laughs) Like, if it was a gun or whatever so he says okay get the plane down to ten thousand feet 
because what he's thinking is below 10,000 feet, if someone fires a pistol in the plane, uh-huh. it's not going to cause explosive decompression. Okay. So that's the first step. Get down below 10,000 feet. They give vectors to get him back to Memphis, but as they're watching, the plane is still veering off. I think it was going northwest, like up past Little Rock or something mm-hmm. at this point. So they're still not turning around. And their traffic controller in the episode is like, you know, I kind of wanted to check with him and be like, hey, did you get the right vectors? And he's like, I didn't know if they were trying to deceive the hijacker. So he's like, I, he's like, hey, are you able to uh, make it back to the airport? And Tucker's basically like, sort of like uh yeah kind of give me (laughs) give me a second sort of thing (laughs) hold on (laughs) yeah (laughs) just give me a second uh (laughs) back in the galley callaway now is pinned again sanders is beating him with the hammer Mm. again not trying to kill him but just trying to incapacitate him he's got this 20 ounce framing hammer and he hits callaway in the head four times so at this point they have callaway somewhat subdued and now sanders starts yelling at tucker to come help i'm flying a plane (laughs) Exactly. He's like, but basically, at least again, hold on. (laughs) Yeah. Give me a fucking minute. But basically, like, from I don't know how much of these are like direct quotes. It says at the top of the episode, it's like these are all taken from transcripts. So they may have been pulling all this from the CBR. I don't know. Okay. Basically, you hear Sanders really annoyed, just being like, just put it in autopilot and get up here. (laughs) Like, Because it's like Peterson is like almost bled out at this point. Sanders, who's probably the least injured, I mean, this point probably less injured than Callaway, but he's exhausted. He's like, I need help. And he like he's gonna recover and like take us out. Right. So uh this is what Tucker I like. And by the way, Tucker's interviews are funny because (laughs) you can tell he's just like so military about everything. Where when he's talking about like, well, the best weapon I had was the aircraft itself. Like he's just very just and he says, What you have to understand is that that's probably the strangest request i've ever had come my way because here i am the only one up front in the cockpit and for me to go to the back well that means i have to first of all stand up which i didn't know if i could do until i tried and it was very difficult to do so (laughs) he tries to put the plane in autopilot but the plane since it was doing all this crazy stuff Mm -hmm. it's got gyros it won't let him put it in autopilot because they need to stabilize. So it takes him a second, but he finally gets it put into autopilot, starts to go back to help. So now at this point, nobody's flying the plane. And you have this essentially a bloodbath in the galley. Tucker said he went back there and he said he saw the three men piled up on the ground. Sanders kind of on top, Peterson underneath, Callaway on the bottom, sort of laying flat on his back. Mm-hmm. Blood everywhere. He said there were bloody footprints on the uh, roof of the plane, mm-hmm. on the, uh, um, whatchamacallit, the um, smoke curtain. He said that the jump seats were just ripped out, just totally <sighs> ripped to pieces. Everything was just a shambles. And these men back there are just covered in blood. Sanders manages to get, finally get the spear gun away from Callaway. So as Tucker is coming up, Sanders is like, here, take this, and gives him the spear gun. Tucker takes the spear gun, and now he's standing over Callaway, and he's like, if you move, I'll kill you. Sanders is like, okay, let me go up front now. I'm going to try and fly this thing. (laughs) Meanwhile, air traffic control has been radioing them this whole time. (laughs) Oh, my God. Being like, "Um, come back. 705 and like nobody's answering oh my god so finally sanders gets on he's like uh yeah we're coming back to the airport we've got control of the situation which they sort of did Mm. he's like we need to come back to memphis so they give him the vectors to come back to memphis again they realize he's still going the right direction well the problem is he's now is half blind because all the blood has gone into his left eye Uh also he's his glasses got knocked off 
So he's kind of, he's like looking at the gauges, being like, er, I guess, well, you know. <sighs> so he actually inputs the wrong heading at first, so it's still going the wrong way. And so mm-hmm. the um, air traffic controller is like, um, yeah, no. <laughs> Hi. No. Hi. Sorry, we know you're busy. <laughs> so finally, Sanders is able to input the right heading and he gets the plane swung around to come back to Memphis. When he went into the cockpit, by the way, he had left the spear gun with Tucker. Mm-hmm. And I think someone still had a hammer because there's still a hammer back there. But he managed to get all of Callaway's other weapons and just throw them into the cockpit because he wanted nothing in reach in case Callaway's able to kind of yeah. overpower them again, which isn't unlikely because at this point, Tucker is standing over him with the spear gun, but he realizes he can't feel his hands. He can't actually feel the spear gun in his hand. Peterson is essentially passed out on top of Callaway. Uh, Again, almost bled out from the severed artery in the back Mm -hmm. of his head. And now Callaway, who's claiming, he's like, I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm not going to fight. But he says, you need to let me up. I I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Um, So he starts trying to push Peterson off. Peterson, who, like I said, almost passed out, manages to keep him down with Tucker. They manage him to wrestle him back to the floor. Mm-hmm. Sanders, like I said, he at this point has been able to reset their course. They're heading back to the airport, but he realizes they have a major problem beyond everything else. Yeah. Is that, you know, they were filled up with like, I think it was like 250,000 tons or something of fuel. Uh-huh. Because it's supposed to get them all the way to California. Well, they're 20 minutes into their flight. They're way too heavy to land. So if you come in to land and you're overweight, you come down too fast Yeah, and you can crash, but also you can just run off the runway because you can't stop. You yep. know, try, Imagine the brakes trying to stop 250 extra tons. And I think they said there was a 9,000 foot runway that they were trying to land on. Uh-huh. The DC-10 normally would be able to land on 6,000 feet, but with this extra weight and they're also their airspeed is just too fast. He needs mm. to find a way to slow down. Okay. They could easily run off of this 9,000 foot runway. He considers trying to dump the fuel, but he looks back and he realizes, well, I'm sure he knew this, but the uh, switches to dump the fuel, they're in the engineer's console. So to do this, he would have to get up out of the seat, go switch, you know, which again would leave the plane not being flown. And at this point, he's just like, I need to get this damn thing down on the ground because he doesn't know what's going on with Callaway. Mm -hmm. So he decides I'm just going to have to figure out a way to land with 250 extra or 250,000 extra tons of fuel so they descend now he's descending down through 7,000 feet as they're descending and nearing the airport Callaway kind of gets a second wind or a third wind and he starts fighting back now he's still got Tucker and Peterson they're laying on top of him trying to pin him down Mm -hmm. Um, but he starts pulling himself back to the frame of the jump seat because he's trying to leverage himself up And so Mm -hmm. they're fighting almost out of strength at this point, but they're fighting to keep him back. And Callaway starts trying to gouge out Tucker's eyes with his thumbs. Which, of course, means Tucker is screaming. And this is what he says. He says, it was certainly a fight against the clock. Auburn was getting stronger and we were getting weaker. Mm. Sanders, at this point, remember when he had been hitting him with the hammer before he was like i wasn't trying to kill him i was just trying to incapacitate him well now at this point he's like fuck it Mm -hmm. he levels the plane he puts it into autopilot and he starts to get up because he's like i was just gonna go back there and kill him he was like at that point he's like we we just needed this to be over yeah but as he starts to get up tucker calls out to him and says it's okay okay we think we got him under control he was like are you sure yes we have him under control so he gets back in the seat starts again to prep for landing and realize that few seconds delay of him 
getting up actually just increased the problem that he had before because he wasn't able to start slowing down. Mm-hmm. So now they're X number of seconds closer to the airport. He's already too heavy and too fast. And he was like, he's like, I can't r- land on this runway. They're trying to get him to land on a runway that was just a straight in shot. Uh-huh. He's like, I can't, I can't do it. I'm going too fast. I'm going to have to circ- do some maneuver to lose speed. So he radios air traffic control and he was basically like, can you vector me for this runway, which was perpendicular mm-hmm. to the runway he was trying to land on. So mm-hmm. we'd have to come in, approach the runway, do a right 90 degree turn. Mm-hmm. extremely sharp 90 degree turn to fly now parallel to the runway away from the runway mm-hmm. and then once he's cleared the runway he would have to do an extremely tight 180 degree u-turn to try and come in okay and you got to remember what tucker was already putting the plane through so mm-hmm. they don't know the condition of the plane they don't know how responsive it's going to be to this right stuff. and now sanders is going to put it through even more because to do these turns he's got to essentially put the plane on its side like bank so steeply that it's essentially wings pointed up and down. He does the 90 degree turn, pulls it off, shoots out past the runway, and then goes into the 180 degree turn. And he said it was a very strange configuration for landing. Because usually when you're trying to land a plane, you're not coming out of a U-turn. Mm-hmm. And you're also, you need extra thrust because you're slowing down. You don't want to lose lift. We said, I had, I, I was going so fast, I actually had the engine at idle. So as he's in these turns, like the risk of a stall of an airspeed stall is extremely high and they are so close to the ground there's just no way to recover but he manages to do the 180 degree turn mm-hmm. comes down on the runway again still too fast mm-hmm. but it's like it's now or never mm-hmm. puts it out and he was like well i was just hoping the tires didn't blow <laughs> oh, but he managed to land the plane they get it down on the ground so he used up almost all of this nine thousand foot runway but he managed to stop the plane Uh meanwhile they're still fucking fighting in the galley (laughs) oh my god yeah sanders gets up he goes into the galley and and basically at this point i think this is right before they land kind of right as they're landing callaway gets a hold of the hammer again or no peterson got a hold of the hammer Mm-hmm. But, he, but he had no strength because he'd almost bled out completely. He essentially almost had no pulse at this point. Oh, my God. Okay. Tucker, the first officer, is laying on his on Callaway's legs. Peterson is essentially passed out on top of him. But he's got the hammer in his hand. And Tucker's just like, hit him, hit him, just almost like begging him. Like, hit him. You have to do this. Peterson manages to to somehow find the strength with almost no blood in his body to, again, hit Callaway in the head with the hammer. Mm -hmm. Doesn't kill him, but does stun him enough that it kind of takes the fight out of him. So by the Mm -hmm. time they're down, Callaway's just kind of laying there. Peterson's Mm -hmm. laying on top of him. Tucker is laying on his legs. Sanders comes out of the cockpit, opens the door, and the chute deploys, thinking, okay, now SWAT team is going to come up. But there's a problem. <laughs> it's a big slick shoot. So how's the uh-huh. SWAT team? So basically they had to come send people up one by one up a ladder uh. into the plane. The first person they sent up was actually an EMT, a guy named David Teague, who's also interviewed in the Air Disasters episode. And he's saying, he was talking about how when right before Sanders landed, he was watching him do this turn. Mm-hmm. This 180 degree turn come in and then he kind of disappeared below the terminal and Teague was again and he was like I saw all this smoke he was like he was like I thought they crashed but it turned out there was construction over there and so okay. that's where the smoke was coming from but so Teague goes up into the plane and again I don't know if this is a direct quote or if this is like dramatized for uh-huh. 
Smithsonian Channel. But Sanders essentially is like, you need to handcuff him. Like that son of a bitch is still dangerous. So Teague like calls Darren to the SWAT guy's like, hey, uh, throw me up some handcuffs. Because <laughs> he's an EMT. He's not a cop or anything. Oh, God. But they managed to handcuff Callaway, who, again, could be dramatic license, but he's on the ground as they're cuffing him. And he's like, you're hurting me. You're hurting. Oh. And it's just like, go fuck yourself at this point. Oof. But so they cuff him. Teague checks Peterson, realizes he's, this guy is almost dead. He has yeah. almost no pulse. So they get him. It looks like they essentially just shoot him down the slide. Yeah. They They're just like, go for a ride. Guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they send Peterson down and then they send Tucker next who again he's less severely injured than peterson but he's like half of his body is paralyzed right. he is essentially deforming a blood clot in the brain they get him down basically mm-hmm. left sanders as the last crew member on the plane mm-hmm. and so here's his quote right before he leaves the plane he says standing in the doorway i had a sense of euphoria i've never experienced before or since it was the sense of we had been there and we came back and we won so that was wow. the crazy flight, Federal Express 705. Let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. Yes. And why Callaway did what he did. Yes. So like I said, Callaway, he was this decorated Navy pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd gone to Stanford University. Uh, they interview a guy in the episode who I think it said he was like a, an assistant DA. So probably was who prosecuted him. And he was also a black man. Mm-hmm. You can almost tell the way he's talking about it. He's almost angry because he's like, Callaway, he had accomplished things. No black man no african-american had done before Mm. and then this is kind of how it ends you know for him (sighs) now again rank speculation going back to last week i'm looking at this and i'm thinking there's some mental illness here yeah um depression or something something because he did have problems you know like i said his career had stalled Mm-hmm. Um, he had been relegated to being a flight engineer. He'd gone through, it sounds like a pretty acrimonious divorce about four oh. years earlier. Like I said, he was still doing everything he could to support his ex and his two kids. And it sounds like he was kind of obsessed with his kids also being able to go to Stanford. So he's trying to figure okay. out how he can afford this after a divorce. Okay. As the police are searching the plane, they actually find a letter that he had written to his wife that he had tucked into his stuff. So they think he was actually writing it in the jump seat before he carried out the attack. That's not quite a suicide note, but it's basically like, you know, I just want you to know I'm thinking about you every day. I'm trying to figure out how to make this work. It sounds like he was still pretty in love with his wife. Mm. He was also, his career was in jeopardy. Because yeah. the day after this attack, if, it, mm-hmm. if he hadn't carried out the attack, the next day he was supposed to report to a disciplinary hearing. Because once the company looked at his records, they realized it appeared that he had falsified some information and actually overestimated the amount of training flight hours that he had had. So they were pulling him up for this disciplinary hearing, and it was likely that he might have been fired. And, and okay. with this kind of infraction, it would have been a career ender. Okay, so what they were thinking is that he had been like, I've had X number of training, and it was actually less than that. So he wasn't as qualified. That's what it sounds like. Is that the gist of it? Yeah, he was overestimating the amount of flight hours that he had had on this plane. At at some stage of the process, he was giving wrong numbers. Now, it's not clear, did he make a mistake? That's possible. Or was he lying? Okay. You know, it's not clear okay but he was being called up for this disciplinary hearing and if he got fired it would it would have been a career ender for him yeah like he's not a pilot anymore so this is essentially what they believe was the plan was to crash the plane and make it look like an accident yeah and this is why he used the weapons that he did mm-hmm. um because if he had brought a gun or a bomb or a knife once they examined the records they would find these things and uh-huh. be like well clearly this was an attack 
Uh-huh. Hammers could be part of the cargo, could be part of a tool chest that exploded. Mm-hmm. The spear gun, I'm like, I don't know how he thought that would get justified. But even then, it's such a weird weapon to use. I think he's thinking they're just not going to put it together. Right. It's just going to be part of the debris and they're not going to think, oh, the spear gun was used to try and take this plane. Right. Also, the injuries that were caught would be caused by the hammer would essentially be the same injuries you would have in a plane crash. In a crash, yeah. The day before, apparently, or the week before, I think, he had essentially liquidated all his assets and sent $54,000 to his ex-wife. He also amended his will and testament, which he left on his bed before he left for this flight, oh essentially leaving everything, it sounds like, to his ex-wife. And he had a life insurance policy that would be worth $2.5 million if he died in a work-related accident. So they think this was the plan. They also think his original plan was he was going to attack the flight crew that he normally flew with because in that instance, there only would have been two people to deal with. And one of them, I think the, I can't remember if they said it was the pilot or the co-pilot, but one of them was a woman who was quite a bit smaller than him. Yep. But he was stuck with having to take down these three men, two of whom were also ex-military. So that's essentially what saved the day. Um, Some of this... This is kind of crazy to me, though, because he's trying to make it look like they die in a plane crash, like an accident. But he's doing all these things that, in retrospect, would look very suspicious. Super suspicious. The will on the bed alone. The will on the bed. Liquidating all his accents. Leaving a note to his wife. Mm. So this, like, it takes me back to the Harold Perlson story mm-hmm. from last week, where it's like, he had a plan. And in some ways, it was a very, like, meticulous plan. But also, there was all these things that, like, would have just sort of given it up. Right. So I'm thinking he, like, it just, again, it feels like he wasn't thinking straight. Yeah. And that, Again, I just have, they didn't say this for sure, but I have to think there was some depression or something involved here. Also, it was a little weird that he even tried, because obviously they think he was sneaking into the cockpit to pull this breaker for the cockpit voice recorder. Mm -hmm. But they were kind of like, well, we don't know why he bothered to do that, because the cockpit voice recorder could only record 30 minutes of conversation anyway. So if he hadn't done that, which could have like grounded the plane, he would have just had to incapacitate them and then fly another 30 minutes before crashing the plane and erase the record of what had happened. Now, this is theorized in the episode, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure how much credit to give it. It says they also think it was possible he was planning to turn the plane around and crash it into the FedEx headquarters, mm. sort of in an act of revenge against this company. Okay. I don't know that there's evidence of that. Okay. So just putting it out there. The episode mentioned it, but it seems like that seems like a little wild speculation. Mm -hmm. So everyone survived, including Callaway. He tried to plead temporary insanity and didn't work. He ended up being found guilty and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And I believe he's still alive and is still in prison. Mm. Sanders, Tucker, and Peterson were given the gold medal award for heroism from the Airline Pilots Association, which is the highest award any non-military pilot can receive. But they were never able to fly again. Their injuries were just way too extensive, and they were never able to be medically certified to fly again. Do you know Uh, how old they were when this happened? 49, 49, and 39, I think. I have oh, it written. Oh man. Down. Okay. Yeah. It was. Let me look. I've got it in here. 49 year old Captain David Sanders, 42 year old first officer Jim Tucker, 39 mm-hmm. year old flight engineer Andrew Peterson. 
So this, you know, for Peterson and Tucker, mm-hmm. you know, this is like right in the meat of their career. You know, it's possible mm-hmm. to imagine Sanders might have been looking at retirement. You know, he's 49. You know, mm-hmm. you might, that's when you start thinking about it. But they have many years of flying left. But th- that was all taken away from them. Mm-hmm. Tucker, in particular, who was the first officer who did all the crazy maneuvers with the plane while he was half paralyzed, he took 2.5 years to recover. He said he essentially had to relearn how to walk. He said. <sighs> And then even after his recovery, the the brain injury, they essentially had to pull bone chips out of his brain from the hammer blows. Yep. Even after his recovery, he had developed a slight seizure disorder. And he says in the episode, he's like, I'm seizure free now, but with medication. And he's like, right. to be a pilot, you can't, you got to be can't. off the medication. Yep. And they talked to both him and Peterson, who was the flight engineer, about this. You know, and he's basically like, you know, I was hoping I could fly again, but that's kind of the way it goes. He seems pretty resigned to it. Mm. And then Peterson said something like, he's like, you know, every time I look at a plane take off, I'm always wondering where it's going. Like, I really miss it. But oh man! But then he was like, but I'm just so thankful to have this. Yeah. Life, you know? Yeah. So I think they're like, well, that sucks, but we're alive. Right. And so that is the story of the crazy attempted hijacking of FedEx Flight 705. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you remember I was texting you about it a couple weeks ago. And I was like, yeah. I'm watching the craziest <laughs> goddamn thing. It's like when he goes in with the hammers and the spear gun, I was like, I mean, you can't write this. No. Like if I tried to write this in a screenplay, it would have been like, what is this supposed to be? Snakes on a plane or something? <laughs> too much. Like, That's too much. Tone it yeah. down. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, That is the story. And I'm really, like, I was watching the episode thinking, like, at first I was like, how the hell, like, clearly they survived because they're interviewing survivors. But I'm like, when he's flipping the plane upside down and stuff, I'm like, how, how the hell? So we're recording this the day after the, yes, uh, (laughs) after the flight from Denver to Hawaii had to be grounded um, because they lost an engine. And I just continue to be amazed at how the, the capability of pilots and of, you know, of air transport traffic controllers, but of pilots to be in a situation like that and to not just, right. you know, like fall over dead. I, yeah. I like, I, 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 you know, we were chatting about this in a big group text yesterday. And I was saying that like, if I was in the situation of Denver, like not even this situation, but in a situation of Denver that I would just be screaming, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Over and over again. Like I, right. I, I cannot imagine. And no. it's the same thing that, you know, you see with doctors and medical folks and stuff that can just see something and something just clicks in their brain that it's like, there is a task to do and a task after that and a a task after that. And we just click our way through these tasks. And most of us just go through our lives, never having this put to the challenge, like how you would react in this situation. I remember you asked me when we were talking on the Mothman episode, like, what would I do if I saw like, you know, a 10 foot Mothman (laughs) character coming at me? And I was like, I'd fucking scream and run. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know if I would freeze. And that's the thing is you don't know. You just right. don't know. I think it helps that at least two of these guys were military. And I think you find out what you're capable of in the military. But sure. uh, but even that's not a guarantee. Like, I think it, it's when you watch this episode. And again, it's this cheesy. I mean, it's the great. Don't get me wrong. It's the greatest TV show of all time. Right. Should right. be in the loop. Modern art. <laughs> right. But it is this cheesy ass like recreation of it, you know, right. where it's like they're trying to show them like tumbling around the galley and you can just tell they're just, it's like the Star Trek thing where they're just tipping the camera back. And right. Back. And then everybody's you know? like, whoa. 
yeah. But I'm trying to imagine what that must have actually been like. And like my brain just locks up. Yeah. It's, it's just like done. You yeah. Know? I, I mean, I can't imagine it. Yeah. I mean, both of the situations from both of the stories, right. you know what I mean? It's very, yeah, I can't, I, it's, it's like, you know, talking about the people who do the trek to the crash site to sort of like, how did they do this? Like, right. I think you can sit there all day and be like, how did, you know, you can hypothesize about it. Right. But yeah, being in it is, is a completely different story. Yeah. It's, it's just, uh, what, what I do love, you know, because when you watch air disasters or it's gone through several names, it was Mayday for a while, then aircraft right. investigator. So I don't even know, but you can find it, whatever. Like most of the stories end with a massive plane crash and a bunch of people dying. Yeah. And often enough, it's like, cause this pilot fucked up this or this, Mm -hmm. or it's like, here's a fucking bolt that fell off of one thing that got jammed in this other thing, which then lead to this. And then the plane goes down Mm -hmm. and it, you know, and I think I might've mentioned this when I was talking about the Gimli glider that I actually, from watching the show, I've provoked a phobia of flying myself. Oh, you gotta stop. (laughs) I can't, I can't stop it. And now I'm hooked on the show called disasters at sea, which is all about boat sinking. No, mm -mm. (laughs) that's forget that. That is a no go for me. I can't, I can't stop watching these shows, but what I do love about, because these shows, you know, it'll just make you think like, how does any plane ever land safely? I don't know how planes fly. Yeah. I mean, like that in and of itself to me is, is, I mean, I'm sure somebody could like sit there and explain it to me. People have my, my, my flight (laughs) expert has in fact been like, this is how this happens. And I'm like, I still don't get it. Like it still doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, yeah. Cause you're thinking like, just talking about the extra fuel they had on board, 250,000 tons. That's Mm -hmm. just in fuel. That's not even the plane or the cargo or like, you know, so how does something like that get into the sky? Like, so it's like you watch these shows and it's easy to convince yourself well i mean you know every time you get on an airplane you're taking your lives in your hand which obviously is statistically very untrue these shows are cherry picking episodes yes and it's more dangerous to drive than it is to get on a plane the show is not called you know a bunch of planes that landed safely it's called air disasters (laughs) normal flights where everything went fine (laughs) yeah you know maybe the um you know, like they, they ran out of peanuts or yeah, some they should have passed out some extra peanuts or something. <laughs> um, but what I do like about some of the episodes where they survive, particularly, you know, like the Gimli glider in this one mm-hmm. is it just shows like this, like the Gimli glider and this one just show like what a great pilot can do yeah. in the moment, you know, of just yeah. like, I got to improvise <laughs> yep. or like I'm out of fuel and I got to do this slip glider maneuver to land the plane mm-hmm. or like half my body is paralyzed and I've got a crazy man hitting us with hammers and they still manage to get the planes down and then this episode in particular it's like it's easy to start thinking when you watch these shows oh these planes are so fragile they just break so easily well i mean look at what tucker was doing to this plane right and they managed to get it on the ground yeah so that's it's it's like the perfect perfect storm for me of like great pilots and great engineering Mm -hmm. allowed them to survive yeah just real quick, I don't know if I said it, it's probably pretty assumed, but I will say uh, in regards to my story, the official cause of the crash was, of course, pilot error. There was yeah. nothing wrong with anything. It was just pilot error. Right. I'm going to pause right here because I realized during your story, I got so emotional talking about the hip replacement. I don't know if I actually finished that sentence. Okay. 
in that, and if if I did, you can cut this out, but that <laughs> the Catalan had a osteoarthritis in his hip and that Canessa, along with other survivors, raised the money to pay for the hip yeah. replacement surgery. I did say that? Yeah, you did. Okay, so then you can cut this out. Yeah. <laughs> I was just no, worried that, that I was, was like, I got so fucked up about it that I no, like, you didn't told, finish it. Like the two things you said in your story that really fucked me up. Mm-hmm. And I was like watching you get fucked up. Yeah. But it was the four guys who stayed behind behind yeah and and the hip replacement because it's like how many years later they were still like this guy fucking saved our lives yeah so we need to like do what we can for him yeah. and the fact that he made it to 2020 he was 91 years old yeah like, good job sir yeah well done it's, oh god yeah and even like that pilot in yours who you know obviously was pilot error but it's like i think about you know it's easy for us i think to sit here and be like you know well fucking that idiot why did he turn so early whatever but like you're flying through extreme weather instruments you're being trained i mean i just try to imagine like you know would i make the same mistakes yeah i mean there's so many moving parts literally and figuratively on an airplane mm-hmm. that like you know i think it's you know, even remember the gimli glider episode mm-hmm. uh the whole thing was because they did not do the feet to leaders conversion. Right, 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 right. But it's so easy. You know, you've got these checklists, but you're understaffed, yeah. you're overworked, something goes wrong, which throws off the checklist. It's just so easy to miss something. That right. it's like, I'm always like, we need to be careful about like sitting here in judgment. Well, <laughs> having yeah. to having to do, which also just sidebar the spell check as I was like, you know, doing the research and getting the document together for this, you know, I'm talking about like the right wing being clipped off the left wing being clipped off spell check kept wanting me to do like right wing, like to hyphenate it or left wing. And I was like, no, it's the (laughs) actual (laughs) wing that is on the right side of the fucking plane. But um, (laughs) with this whole thing with this Denver flight yesterday, you know, the tweets that are coming out around it are pretty incredible. You can see video of, yeah, you know, the, it is insane. Yeah, the engine that looks to be on fire, which we've also been told by our flight expert is like, hey, that's how the thing looks on the inside anyways. Like you yeah, need combustion just, to get a plane the, to right. fly through the air. Yeah, um, it's just the outer shell of it, whatever blew off. Or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but within one of the threads, I had seen somebody who, you, you know, they were being kind of snarky and it was sort of like, it was a video of somebody and it looked, it doesn't matter what airline it was, but of like a, um, a technician or something putting what looked to be duct tape around the, like, you know, the big engine, I'm sure there's uh-huh. a name for it, but that big thing, like over the seam and was sort of like, oh yeah, like th- that's why stuff like this happens. And somebody comes in and was like, hey, I get like what you're trying to do here, but mm-hmm. that is like, it is a specific kind of tape that is meant to yep. smooth surfaces, to bring down drag. It's used all the time. Like this isn't, you know, right. this there, it's not actual duct tape being used to like do a quick fix on a problem yeah. on a plane that is carrying passengers. Like that is what. Yeah. They didn't go do. to Staples and clear out their scotch. Tape. Right. Right. <laughs> Well, it's just yeah, like, like. <laughs> returning theme on this podcast is like, guys, like maybe take a seat when you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, like we only kind of know what we're talking about, but we at least try to admit <laughs> the things we don't know what we're I talking about. I feel like about. we do a fairly good job of yeah. being like, this is 100%. Like this is wild speculation. This right. is just my opinion. I don't know anything about this. I'm armchair psychologizing. Or, or I saw four dudes on Reddit say this. So I'm right. Like, <laughs> say this with a bunch of like 
qualifications. <laughs> yeah. And we say, I, <laughs> I was laughing a couple of episodes when I was like, I said something that I was like, I am not, I think I said, I am not a, a historian, but I was like, once again, I'm not a historian. <laughs> and I cracked myself up because I was like, am I, I'm, I'm not constantly saying this, but that should just be a general disclaimer. Yeah. Scotty and I are experts in, in very small niche categories right. um, of which we have a lot of like useless random knowledge of things. And we're pretty good at googling and we're and we're real good at googling uh that's our skill set for this podcast. Right, but <laughs> it, this is very much like views and opinions heard on this podcast right and and like hey guys if we get things wrong like i'm more than happy to like have it pointed out but like we're gonna get things wrong because. yeah we're gonna get things wrong and i mean i'd be you know i would love to hear about stuff that like Especially if I've if I've covered it on the podcast, it means it's something that I'm interested in. Exactly. And if there is more information out there somewhere, like hell yeah, I'd love to hear about it. You know, I mean, you know, be nice. Yeah. Uh, and mean, understand we're trying. <laughs> we're trying. We're doing our best. The whole point of this podcast is curiosity. So. Yep, that's yeah. it. All right, guys. <sighs> well, what a harrowing episode. I know. Yeah. Well, well, I'll put all the trigger warnings in. Yeah. That's <laughs> that that harrowed me to the marrow. There we yeah. go. Ugh. Well, as always, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, reach out on us, reach out to us on social media. <laughs> reach out on us <laughs> maybe don't do that we don't need that <laughs> they would have just cut that part but then you had to laugh over it now the laugh would make sense. <laughs> um, reach out to us on social media yeah stay weird stay curious and we will see you next week bye bye Listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. <laughs>